Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 7th, 2011, and my guest is Gary Taubes. He is the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, a quite extraordinary book that is our subject today. Gary, welcome to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you, Russ, for having me. Your book is about diet and health, heart disease, obesity, but it's also a book about a topic that I've been thinking a lot about lately in economics, which is the challenge of being a truth seeker when you have an ideology or a pet theory. So we're going to talk about health, but underneath the discussion, and occasionally right out in the open, we're going to be talking about economics. First, because the body, like the economy, is a complex system where it's hard to assess and measure cause and effect. And second, because epidemiology, the study of what causes various diseases and what might cure them, is very much like macroeconomics. There's a lot of data, a lot of statistical techniques trying to isolate the impact of one variable on another. So, Gary, you'll talk about the health, and from time to time, I'll interject a little a little economics. Okay. Now, your book starts with the idea, which was very prominent and commonly believed by a large group of people, that fat, eating fat, and fat in your diet, particularly animal fat, isn't good for you, and it leads to heart disease. How did that come to be uh, accepted wisdom in the medical profession? Okay, well, let me also say, I think it's still commonly believed by most people, and the latest dietary guidelines, once again, are trying to get us to limit our fat intake and limit our our saturated fat intake. So this is a a hypothesis that grew out of the observations of one very zealous uh, University of Minnesota nutritionist in the... um, in the 1950s, a fellow named Ansel Keys, who came up with this idea that uh, dietary fat raised cholesterol, and it was raised cholesterol that caused heart disease. And um, at the time, there was effectively no meaningful experimental data to support. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase that. There was no experimental data to support that observation. But Keys was a very... Uh, uh, Seemed plausible, though. It seemed very plausible. It seemed compelling, and Keyes was a, a persuasive fellow. And by the 1960s or so, the American Heart Association got behind it, in part because Keyes and a fellow proponent of this hypothesis, a cardiologist from Chicago named Jeremiah Stamler, got onto the American Heart Association got involved with an ad hoc committee and were able to publish a report basically saying we should all cut our fat intake. Um, this was 1961. Like I said, no data to support it, no experimental data at all. And once the American Heart Association got behind it, it got a kind of believability that uh, the attitude was it's probably right and all we have to do is test it. Um, or we're going to believe it's true, but we don't have the data yet because we haven't done the tests yet. And Researchers start doing tests, experimental trials, putting one, you know, one taking a population, for instance, uh, a famous study at the VA hospital in Los Angeles where you randomize half of them to a cholesterol-lowering diet, which is not actually low in fat, by the way. It's low in saturated fat and high in polyunsaturated fat. And then you put the, the other half of the, the 
your subjects eat uh, a controlled diet and you look for heart disease over the number of years and you see what happens. And trial after trial was sort of unable to prove the hypothesis true. But the more we studied it, the more people simply believed it must be true. And meanwhile, the American Heart Association's pushing it. Um, other observations are being compiled to support it, even though in order to support it, you have to ignore the observations that don't support it. So you pay attention to the positive evidence, ignore the negative evidence. Um, one Scottish uh, researcher who I interviewed memorably called this Bing Crosby epidemiology, where you accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Yeah. Um, kind of is, you know, it's basic human nature, but this is what happened. And as the American Heart Association gets behind it, the, the journalists see the American Heart Association as honest brokers of information on this, so they have no reason to doubt the AHA. And the AHA was honest brokers, they just were bad scientists, or they were not scientists. Um, so then the press gets behind, and as the press gets behind it, politicians begin to think maybe we should do something about it. And a congressional subcommittee gets involved, run by George McGovern, uh, that had originally been founded in the late 60s to address hunger in America, and they did a lot of good things with school lunch programs and food stamps, and by the mid-1970s, they were running out of things to do, so they decided since they'd been dealing with what they called undernutrition, which is not enough food, they would get involved in overnutrition, which was the problem of too much food and obesity and diabetes and heart disease. And literally one guy, they have one day of hearings, McGovern Subcommittee, and they assign a former labor reporter from the Providence, Rhode Island Journal um, to write the first dietary goals for the United States. It's the first document ever from a... <clears throat> uh, government body of any kind suggests that we should that a low fat diet's a healthy diet and once McGovern comes out with this this document written by a former labor reporter who not, knew nothing about nutrition and health um now the USDA feels they have to get involved and you get this kind of cascade or domino effect um to the point that by 1984, the NIH holds a consensus conference claiming that they have a consensus of opinion that we should all eat low-fat diets when they still don't have a single meaningful experiment showing that a low-fat diet or cholesterol-lowering diet will reduce the risk of heart disease or at least make you live longer. Because some, a few of the studies <clears throat> suggested that um, you could reduce risk of heart disease, but you would increase cancer. And now one study, the biggest study ever done, which was in Minnesota, actually suggested that if you put people on cholesterol-lowering diets, you um, increase mortality. They had more deaths in the intervention group than the control arm, and in that case, they just didn't publish the study because they got what they perceived as the wrong result. So it's sort of 20 years of this must be true, or why else would we be studying it? So I, I want to I go back a little bit. Yeah. So and again, I, I encourage the listeners to think about the analogies with economics. In economics, we don't usually have real experimental data with a control group. Um, we have some experimental data in microeconomics. When we talk about macroeconomics, talking about the business cycle and what we might do about it, uh, we don't have a control group. What we have are natural experiments, things that happen in the real world that are we assume are exogenous, and we can compare an after with a before. And we also have empirical studies using statistical evidence to try to tease out the individual effects of variables by holding other things constant. 
Now, in the case of the relationship between – and then we have logic, I should add, which is very important, right. uh, often downplayed but, but very important. And, of course, it can lead you astray if you're not careful so, uh, on, on any issue. So in the case of this relationship between diet and particularly saturated fat and, and heart disease, there was a certain logic, which is we were pretty sure that heart disease is caused by arteries getting clogged up by plaque. So the logic seemed – and therefore, if you ate things that made your arteries – that changed your cholesterol level, it seemed logical that, of course, it would be the case then that you'd have a higher risk of, of having heart disease and then a heart attack. Then you could ask, well, the evidence for that could be of two kinds, three kinds in the case of epidemiology. You, you could have historical incidents, and this would be the equivalent of trying to figure out what got us out of the Great Depression. And I want you to talk about that. An example that stands out in my mind from the book would be Japan, Japanese uh, comparative uh, epidemiology between Japanese, say, uh, citizens in Japan versus when they come to America. So you've kind of held – I emphasize kind of held genetics constant – and then so what would be left would be dietary effects. There's that kind of evidence that encouraged people to think about this. They weren't just relying on the logic. Then you'd have real experiments where you have these control groups. So give us a little flavor of those kinds of – those two kinds of evidence, the before and after or the different populations. And then you talk about these failed experiments. There were no, no clinical trials that found some impact of, <laughs> of diet on, on, uh, on heart disease. And, and, and if so, what did the – proponents of the theory what was their explanation because they were they weren't alone they weren't unanimous there there were the voices in the literature and in the profession that said whoa, whoa this isn't 100 percent proven yes those voices were often drowned out but they were out there so they had to respond to that so first talk about the historical or what you might we might call the comparative sort of a natural experiment and well, then the is, actual data yeah and that's what um actually the japanese case you pointed out is a Common one that shows up because the Japanese have the the highest longevity of any uh, uh, you know developed nation, and they have the very low heart disease rates, and they eat very low fat diets. Therefore, um, you can hypothesize that high fat diets cause heart disease rates. When the Japanese come over to the U.S., breast cancer is a classic example. Actually, Japanese women in Japan have very low rates of breast cancer. So when Japanese women come to the U.S. by the second generation, they have the highest, as you know, rates of breast cancer as high as any other ethnic group. And one possibility is that it's because they come over here and they eat more fat. But the problem with those observational studies is, you know, or those those uh, comparisons, you don't know what you're not looking at. So you focus on fat because that's what your hypothesis is about. And this is an endemic problem in public health. You just don't pay attention to anything else. So, for instance, sugar consumption is very low in Japan, and sugar consumption is very high here. So maybe it's sugar that's the cause of heart disease or the absence of sugar that's the reason the Japanese are so relatively healthy. And if you don't look at sugar, you don't know. And so a common observation one of the observations that sort of kicked this hypothesis up a notch was that uh, during the Korean War, you had these young American soldiers who were killed in combat, and they had autopsies, and you could see, you could already see formation of arteriosclerotic plaques, and kids are 18, 19, 20 years old. But they weren't there in the Korean soldiers. So what's the difference between the Koreans and the U.S.? Well, the U.S. eat high-fat diets, the Koreans eat low-fat diets, but there's a lot of differences between uh, you know, Americans and Koreans and American soldiers and Korean soldiers, for instance, Americans eat a lot of sugar, Koreans 
eat little. So you don't know. All you can get out of this is a hypothesis. Um, and you can very easily be misled. And I had a cover story in the New York Times Magazine in 2007 looking at the, the um, using as my case study the single most, a well-known epidemiologic study in the country in public health, which is a nurse's health study at Harvard. And every single time they've had a hypothesis of causation from their data that was tested in a clinical trial, without exception, the trial failed to confirm the hypothesis. doesn't mean the hypothesis wasn't true, but the trial found the opposite. Um, when you get to these experiments, like I said, uh, there were a few experiments that showed that heart disease risk uh, came down with low-fat diets uh, or cholesterol-lowering diets, but simultaneously cancer risk went up. There was a study at a, mental, uh, a couple of mental hospitals in Helsinki that was a really bizarre study, but nonetheless, that was like one of the few studies to ever show that mortality actually increased on the cholesterol-lowering diets. So you had less disease and less deaths on the group getting the cholesterol-lowering diet. So that was taken as evidence that the studies, you know, that your hypothesis is correct, but simultaneously a very similar study in Minnesota, like I said, the largest one ever done, found the opposite. Actually, they found a significant increase in deaths in the the group that had gone on the cholesterol-lowering diet. So if you like the the hypothesis, that one's not reliable, and if you do like it, the other one's not reliable. Exactly, and literally the the investigators who did that uh, Minnesota study just simply – it was finished by 1973, and it was published, if I remember correctly, in 1988 or 89, which was the year after the principal investigator retired. And I tracked him down. I'm a journalist, so I tracked him down, and I asked him, I said, why did you wait 16 years to publish? And he said, because we didn't like the way it turned out. A moment of honesty. I love a moment that. Of, <laughs> and you said, the assumption is if you, don't get the, if you don't get the answer you expect, you did the experiment wrong. And that's still the case today. The classic example is the Women's Health Initiative, which uh, was a huge trial that had a lot of different... Uh, experiments in and one of them was hormone replacement therapy but one of them was a diet trial and the estimate is that alone cost a half billion to a billion dollars and 49,000 women are randomized into two groups and 20,000 are put on a low fat cholesterol lowering diet you know you increase whole grains and fruits and vegetables and you eat lean meat instead of fatty meat and uh, they're followed for I think it was seven years and the other 29,000 women eat to, you know, just go about their lives as usual. Um, and what's interesting is you would expect an intervention effect in a trial like this. So you would expect to see a benefit from the low-fat diet, even if there one didn't exist, because you've got, an, you know, your intervention group is getting an intervention. They're being put on a diet, and they're getting counseling, and the control group isn't. So it's not an equal intervention between the two. And despite that... You see no effect from this study. There's no effect on weight. There's no effect on heart disease. There's no effect on diabetes. No effect on breast cancer. And so the largest experimental trial that I know of ever done, like I said, half a billion to a billion dollars. And the principal investigators who did the study, the NIH that funded it, the World Health Organization, I think even the Centers for Disease Control, all put out press releases saying this trial 
should have no effect on our dietary recommendations to eat low-fat, low-saturated-fat diets, even though it showed that these diets were not beneficial because the assumption is we did the trial incorrectly. I mean, we've been telling people, women, to eat like this for 40 years. We must be right, right? So if the study doesn't confirm that, we must have done the study wrong, and it's always easier to believe with this kind of cognitive dissonance that you did the study wrong, then you've just been giving the wrong advice. Yeah, it's good. To, it's good here to remind listeners. I think I've quoted it before, but you know, Einstein, after the famous study that he had predicted that that the uh, gravitational field of the sun would bend starlight, and it was tested. Beautiful experiment. It was found to be true. Somebody asked Einstein afterwards, uh, "What would you have done if the theory, if the results hadn't confirmed your experiment?" And he said, "Well, I wouldn't have believed them because I know I'm right. <laughs> and if you're the smartest person in the world, I guess." Actually, it's even more dangerous when you're the smartest person in the world. But you know that's a common view that most scientists have, and of course, many times they're wrong. It's the nature of science to make mistakes. Hypotheses don't get borne out by the data. There's things you didn't observe or imagine that could have other effects. Talk about the um, Ansel Keys's Seven Nations study because that's another example. I thought that was a beautiful example, very similar to a lot of studies that I see in economics. This is Ansel Keys. This was the study that began to shift the paradigm. Um, you know, it's in, and it's interesting how these work too, because remember, Keys comes up with this hypothesis. Um, he believes that, I think as early as 1952, he was telling everyone that, they, that he believed that all Americans should eat very low-fat diets, even though he was admitting that there wasn't evidence to support the hypothesis yet. So he could say those things simultaneously. You know, in effect, like Einstein did, I'm sure I'm right. We should all act on it, and I admit that we have no evidence. So then well, he does we will. It's just, very... it just a matter of time, and, you know. Just a matter of time. Well, that's the, 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 the word yet shows up all the time in these studies, and you could see it in newspaper articles. You know, we, we don't have the data yet. And one of the things I'm always arguing to people in these fields is you may never have the data. Never use the word yet. But the <laughs> hypothesis... As soon as you start thinking in terms of yet, yeah, it's a slippery you're slope. you know that you become biased and you're not going to be yeah. able to do good science. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so anyway, talk about Keys, the study, yeah. Yeah, Keyes gets, because he's the leading proponent of the study, of the idea, even though he's done one bad study after another and he's actually been spanked by one um, Report that came out of the AHA, where a lot of the American Heart Association back in 56, 57, where they had a team of cardiologists, biostatisticians look into this and say there's just no evidence to support it. But because he's the leading proponent, he's the one you give money to to test the study. And this is how bias can interject itself into research from the very get go. So instead of saying this is a very interesting idea, Ansel, why don't you come up with a study idea and we'll have a group of very smart people design it with you and then we'll fund somebody else who's unbiased to do it. Instead, you say, here's $200,000, you do the study. And, you know, Ansel's not really that interested in refuting his hypothesis. There's not a paparian bone in his body. But he's a doctor um, and he cares about people. And of course, a, well, that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, I say people that, are dying out there. I said that with irony. Um, but, but it is, I think, uh, academics, doctors, certain classes of folks get the benefit of the doubt, and it's presumed that they are unbiased, that they only care about the truth. And of course, they care about money, one thing, but they also care about their reputation, the glory, the fame. Uh, they're, they don't want to be embarrassed. There's all kinds of things that get in the way 
of trade Well, that's seeking. what I've argued, actually. I think industry influence is far less of a factor in determining how these sciences play themselves out than the kind of issues you just talked about, the ego, funding, fame, building a career. You know, once you bet your reputation on a hypothesis, you cease to do science, you cease to test it, and now what you do is you look for data to confirm it. You're an advocate. You become an You're advocate. You're an advocate. And I mean, it's true. I, yeah, I had now have an alternative hypothesis, and I'm an advocate for that hypothesis, and I hope that it's right, because it's going to be very hard for any data to come along and convince me otherwise. Yeah, I recently, uh, I blogged at Cafe Hayek, my blog about uh, Keynesianism, and it would be equally true about the alternative to Keynesianism, whatever flavor you want. I said, how, what evidence would dissuade you? If you are a Keynesian, you believe that government spending uh, creates prosperity in the face of a recession, which many, many very, very smart people have been advocating. What evidence would dissuade you from that, that belief? And of course, uh, we know that predicting 8% unemployment after a stimulus package is passed and getting 10 uh, is not going to dissuade anybody. N- no right. Keynesian in the face of the uh, alleged or apparent or whatever you want to call it, failure of the 2009 stimulus package, cha- nobody changed their mind. They just said, well, it was worse than we thought or we didn't spend enough, et cetera. So, sorry, I keep, I, I've got you off track again. Talk about keys. Well, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting what you're saying because you have, you know, here we're dealing with preventive medicine. So that's the fundamental problem is you know, you're preventing diseases from occurring in theory. So it's not like you have symptoms that you could address immediately and see if the symptoms resolve with your intervention, although what this does is it turns high cholesterol into a symptom, even though you don't actually know if high cholesterol is the cause of disease, but what we've done is create a whole you know, world of doctors now who think high cholesterol is a disease, and then they could treat it with statins, and they think they're treating symptoms when they have no idea whether they're actually preventing death or did, you know, real disease and hard endpoints, which is what you want to do. But you can never tell from your actions whether, you know, what you, whether what happens is in an observation. You know, there's a famous study in, in Finland where Finland changed their diet and heart disease rates came down in this one part of Finland. And ergo, you know, they got everyone, they got people eating lower fat diets, but they also were quitting smoking and they were also doing other things. And if you look at that one part of Finland, you say, this proves our intervention works. And then other researchers came along and said, wait, you've got the same decreases in heart disease rates all over Finland and places where you didn't do the intervention. Yeah, slightly awkward. But go back to the Seven yeah. Nations study. What okay, did Keyes so yeah, do there? Keyes chooses Seven Nations to study the diet and study the um, and then follow them for a decade and see what happens with heart disease rates. And he picks nations in advance where he 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 rationalizes because this is where I he has um, has connections, so it's cheaper to do. He already knows people. He's created bonds with researchers; they could help him on it. But you know, so for instance, he picks Crete and uh, like Yugoslavia and. Uh, Japan, a couple of places in Japan, and yeah, all over um, the world. It's beautiful. It's a nice uh, representative survey of different types of developed nations, less developed, Asian, right. Western. All nations where he has a pretty good idea what the heart yeah. disease rate is <laughs> and what the diet is. Yeah, it's awkward. Yeah. You know, so maybe he's stacking the decks. And it would have been interesting had he picked France, for instance, a country with a high fat and a high saturated fat diet and low heart disease rates, or Switzerland. But you're not going to do that. 
So he picks countries where he knows in advance, you know, kind of what the answer is, and then he gets the answer he expects for the most part. So saturated fat tracks with heart disease, ergo, and so does cholesterol, ergo, saturated fat raises cholesterol, causes heart disease. I'm going to bring in sugar again because I can't help myself, but sugar actually tracks just as well with saturated fat because basically affluent nations eat a lot of saturated fat and a lot of sugar. And Keyes is a believer of the fat hypothesis, not the sugar hypothesis. That was a British nutritionist named John Yudkin. So Keyes just says, obviously, sugar is irrelevant. Actually, the idea was that people who eat a lot of sugar are also people who smoke a lot of cigarettes. Cigarette smokers, because they drink coffee and they put sugar in their coffee. So you could rationalize away the sugar. And now we've spent, this is the most expensive observational study ever done. So, right, the, the findings have to be true. Um, and we're going to believe it by virtue of the fact that it's the best we could do. Actually, when I've lectured to epidemiologists about this problem that observate that there's no causal information contained in an, associ- an observational association, yeah. Um, their argument still to this day is, but this is the best we can do. Yeah, I, it's the same in economics. Yeah, it, and, and the similar thing in economics is, and it's better to do something than nothing. And so, although we're not sure a hundred percent about this dietary thing, we can't just stand by and let people die of heart disease. We've got to do something, and the best that we can do, for given what we know, is to reduce fat, saturated right. fat. What's the problem with that? Because that's one of the more interesting, again, the underlying economics is very apparent there. Why is that? seems like better safe than sorry. Well, that's the thing. Better safe than precautionary principles yeah. evoked. You know, we have to act. We don't have perfect information. Right. It's funny. A line that you, I would get a lot and that you'd find in the literature, we, we don't have time to dot the I's and cross the T's. We don't have time to get what they would call definitive scientific data. People are dying every day. People are dying every day. This is the way physicians act. You know, I mean, you're in a hospital. Somebody's in a car accident. They come in. They throw the body down in front of you. You don't have time to get definitive scientific it. data. You've yeah. got to act. Yeah. This is what physicians think they have to do. The problem is, from the scientific perspective, and it's one of the, I think, the, the most profound uh, uh, problems, paradoxes I see in this field, is if you just take the perspective of a hard scientist, not having time to get definitive scientific data means you don't have time to know if you're right or not. Yeah, it's it, that simple. Like I said, we got to send a, get a man to the moon before the Russians. So although we don't really know where the, sh- the ship's going, uh, the rocket's going, we'll just we'll do the best we can. That's- we'll do the best we can. We got it. We have to act. We got to beat them. But you know, again, how do you how do you rationalize these? How do you make the scientific viewpoint work with the, you know, because we know that in science, if you don't have definitive scientific data, you don't have compelling evidence yet. It means there are holes that, you know, alternative hypotheses, confounders that could explain what you've seen. Um, It's a toss-up at best, whether you're right or not, depending on whether you consider the odds against you 50-50 or infinity infinity to one. Um, But but you have to grant the view, you have to give something to the view that that with you know, your point about don't use the word yet, I, I agree with that. But I think the counterpoint has some merit, which is you use the word definitive. We rarely, if ever, get definitive proof. So in science, by almost by definition, it's not definitive. It either supports or contradicts or raises questions of a hypothesis. Eventually, you lose the ability to come up with hypotheses that can explain the data. 
other than the one you've got. Um, and again, I grew up in, in physics and a hard science where you could reproduce experiments perfectly. Um, so, you know, you could have much more confidence about whether or not another hypothesis is going to come along that's better at, at explaining what you've seen. Um, it's a fundamental problem. You, and you still, you do indeed have to act. But I think I think but, the key point, and I think this is why economics is so muddled, uh, macroeconomic policy. Key point is that in the area of diet and nutrition, we do have some hope that we will understand things at the uh, micro level that would inform us about the macro effects. We do make advances. We do get better. Uh, we do reject some theories. We do know what's not true, and. I think in economics, it's much, much harder to be optimistic that we're going to get there. But in the case of, of, of epidemiology, nutrition, diet, and, and health, we've made some genuine advances in, in understanding the causal, the causal mechanisms rather than just looking at correlation. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, there Seems are things to me it you is. can <clears> – you know, you can learn from these epidemiologic studies. You know, high blood pressure is associated with an increased risk of heart disease. But you can't learn from an observational study what causes high blood pressure. Um, you know, what dietary, the lifestyle factors actually increase high blood pressure. That you have no idea. That so what, when it comes to, you believe that if you lower blood pressure, you can reduce risk of heart disease. And you could do experimental trials to show that you could do that with drugs. And ideally, you would do experimental trials, trials to show that you could do that with dietary interventions. But what you find there, like I said, is you can get closer to the truth in nutrition and health. But what you find is how closely, how you know, much the, 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 we, we hold on to what we've already believed up until now. Yeah. So, you know, as I've written, there's, there's precious little evidence to support the idea that, that sodium restriction will reduce blood pressure and, you know, saw restriction will reduce blood pressure and um, hypertension and so heart attacks. And yet with each year that goes by, the effort to restrict salt in the diet gets greater and greater, you know, made by the Centers for Disease Control and various government organizations. And the data just get worse. Like the evidence gets worse, but the efforts to do something about what the perceived problem gets gets uh, more vigorous. It's a kind of crazy situation um, where each time a paper comes out that doesn't support the hypothesis, which is virtually every paper now, the establishment responds by pushing harder to get the hypothesis translated into action. Um, well, there's a lot of you know. Obviously, there's a lot of psychological reasons for that. I and mean, you know, my favorite tragic example of this is uh, maternal is uh, maternal mortality before we understood hygiene and and bacteria and purple fever. And uh, the people who said that women were dying after childbirth, be, there were two groups. There was one group that said it was something in the air. We had to keep the windows closed. And there was another group that said, no, actually, doctors should wash their hands when they come from the morgue before they deliver a baby. And uh, it's tragically took a long time to establish which of those was correct. But we did advance on that. We, we, we figured that one out. But surely if you had been telling doctors for a long time you didn't need to wash your hands and it was really something in the air and it was okay to go to the morgue, the idea that you had been killing women for, for decades is unbearable. 
So you're going to have a very hard time conceding the statistical evidence uh, that, that shows the contrary, and, and they did. And it's well, a very this human is, response. I try to imagine the press release that the American Heart Association will put out someday to you know, flip their, para- their nutritional paradigm. So they say, we just want to apologize that for the past 50 years, we've been telling you to eat low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets, and we now realize, as we should have known 49 years ago, that these diets will actually increase the risk of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, perhaps even cancer, and we apologize for, you know, killing your loved ones. And I'm really, and just, really sorry. Really yeah. sorry. And on top of that, now that we've got our heads around right, you know, you can trust us that the advice we're giving you today is correct. Well, let's let's move on to the alternative, some of the alternative hypotheses, which um, I find myself remarkably sympathetic to, which I've, it scares me. Um, <laughs> I, and I, to get there, I want you to talk about what I thought, again, very interesting parallels to economic modeling. Talk about two ways of approaching uh, many of these diseases. One is... Each one has a unique cause. There's high blood pressure. The establishment says, oh, that's caused by salt. Uh, there's heart disease. That's high-fat diet, They're a saturated fat diet. There's diabetes. That's um, whatever Sedentary it is. Sedentary behavior. Sedentary behavior. There's obesity. That's you, you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. So they all have their own unique – Because of the, and I love the way you point this out. They're all complicated. So, of course, we'd expect – <clears throat> We'd expect the explanation to be complicated, but he's, but you point out there's an alternative view, which is that many of these things are connected. Maybe there's actually a simple hypothesis that explains it. And I, so, talk about what the, the evidence for that. What that simple hypothesis might be, which is sugar and refined carbs in your diet, and what the evidence for that is. Well, and that's what um, you know. The idea is obesity, diabetes, heart disease are all associated. So if you're, if you're overweight, they're obese, you're more likely to be diabetic, you're more likely to get heart disease. If you're diabetic, you're more likely to be obese. This is type 2 diabetes we're talking about, not type 1. Um, so they, they cluster together in patients, and they cluster together in populations. And hypertension is another one that goes with them. So like we said, the current, like you said, the current explanation is hypertension is caused by salt, Obesity is caused by eating too much. A gout, by the way, is another disease that is also associated with hypertension, obesity, and diabetes. So gout is caused by eating too much meat and Rich drinking foods. too much wine. Yep. And diabetes is caused by sedentary behavior because we have to explain why. We can't blame it on eating too much because we have to explain why lean people also get type 2 diabetes. Um, but the, the idea that they cluster all together is connected by this. There's a... Uh, a state, a condition now called uh, metabolic syndrome, okay? And metabolic syndrome is a uh, disorder of various metabolic abnormalities that are all, in effect, caused by this condition or associated with this condition called insulin resistance. So your cells become resistant to the hormone, to the insulin that your pancreas secretes. And as your cells become resistant, you have to receive your pancreas responds by secreting more insulin to do the job, and your insulin levels go up. And it turns out that, you know, type 2 diabetes is a disorder of insulin resistance, of elevated insulin levels, and obese uh, individuals tend out to turn out to be insulin resistant and have high levels of 
uh, insulin and this uh, metabolic syndrome can be thought of as a kind of it's the primary risk factor for heart disease now. So if you have a heart attack, almost assuredly it's not going to be because you have high LDL cholesterol, which is the conventional wisdom, but because you have this, these uh, metabolic abnormalities called metabolic syndrome. And they're all tied together by insulin resistance and, and high levels of insulin and sort of dysregulation of insulin signaling. So you could make the argument that whatever it is that causes insulin resistance causes all these diseases. And more importantly, and if you could stop doing whatever that is, you, you can improve all them. these things as opposed to, say, uh, losing weight by a frantic exercise program. But if you don't change your insulin resistance problem, you're not going to reduce your risk of heart attack. Um, yeah, and that's one of the, the – I mean the idea is if you do lose a little weight, you will improve your insulin sensitivity, which will then have positive effects on all these associated diseases, but it's virtually – you can't show that anyone can actually lose weight by exercising more. Um, so now we go to – there's a sort of historical train uh, a context of this as well, which is that going back into the 19th century – uh, the British had these colonial and um, uh, uh, missionary physicians all over the world, all over the British Empire, and a common observation they would make is that you didn't see any of these diseases uh, that, that cluster together, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, that they didn't exist in populations that didn't eat Western diets. Okay, so this grew through the ninth into the 1960s when a British naval surgeon and researcher named Peter Cleave wrote a book that he called it the saccharine disease because the biggest difference that so when when populations moved from eating their traditional diets to Western diets, the first thing that happened is they started eating sugar and white flour because you could ship sugar and white flour all around the world without it being spoiled because effectively there's no nutrients in it, so even the rats aren't interested in it, and so. Whenever a population went from eating their traditional diet, whatever it was, an agrarian population, a meat-eating population like the Inuit or a, uh, you know, the pastoralists in Africa like the Maasai that lived on the, the blood and the milk and the meat from the cattle they herded, in their traditional diets, none of these diseases. And then when they started eating sugar and flour, you'd see these diseases occur and with a pretty consistent, like first obesity, then diabetes and heart disease, and then cancer, and now you've got the whole cluster. Of course, you have to be so careful. You have to be careful. It could be this, what you call, uh, this, what do you call it, the, this, the diseases of civilization? Well, it, it was known as the disease of civilization, and that was considered kind of a demeaning term. It is, you're yes. implying that these people weren't civilized, and you know, so then it became Western diseases. And it's, it's a very a commonly believed... There's I mean, a this is now consensus of opinion today that these diseases are, um, are, are you know, consistent with Western diets and lifestyles. So but that's there's, why there's the a... Japanese, for instance, having less of a Western diet, have less of these diseases. Um, but there's a measurement problem, of course. You have to be careful that, that when they go to, when they get developed or when they move to a Western civilization, they often live longer. So you have to make sure there isn't that problem. You have a measurement issue that maybe yeah, they didn't diagnose it correctly. Before. However, you could, you know, into the 1970s, 1980s, when researchers are doing carefully controlled studies between populations, like even with Alzheimer's, the famous study where um, 
the same researchers diagnosed Alzheimer's in, in African Americans. I think it was uh, Cincinnati, somewhere in the Midwest, and then they went to Nigeria and did it there. So you had the same researchers with the same diagnostic equipment and the same diagnostic criteria. Uh, doing the diagnoses, and you got significantly higher rates of Alzheimer's here than you got in a similar, you know, in an African population in Nigeria. So pretty much a similar ethnic background, separated by three or four hundred years, higher Alzheimer's here at a, you know, at, at any specific age than you had there. So what would it be about the lifestyle that could affect that? And like I said, you tie this with the sugar and flour idea. So is that so? That's Cleve. So what is what's Cleve's punchline? Well, Cleve's punchline is you add sugar and flour to a population, you get diabetes, heart disease, um, obesity. And <laughs> while Cleve is doing that in the mid 1960s, you have a revolution in the understanding of the accumulation of fat and fat tissue. Um, it took a couple of technologies, one that was uh, discovered in 1956 to measure fatty acid uh, concentration in the bloodstream, and then uh, something called the radioaminoassay to measure hormone levels accurately in the blood, which was published in 5960 by uh, Rosalind Yallow and Solomon Burson. Yallow ended up winning the Nobel Prize for it. Burson had died by then. And with these technologies, you could determine what regulates the accumulation of fat in fat cells, and it turns out to be the hormone insulin. And as you study insulin, and as a matter of fact, one of the first measurements that Yellow and Burson did was insulin levels in type 2 diabetics and obese subjects, and they realized that, lo and behold, they both had high levels of insulin. We expected that type 2 diabetics would have low levels, just like type 1 diabetics do, but they don't. And it's the type 2 diabetics that tend to be obese, so now you've got this hypothesis that all you have to do is increase insulin levels and you store calories in your fat tissue, in effect, independent of how much you're eating or how much you're exercising. So just like if you had a, uh, a child that was uh, growth deficient because they're lacking growth hormone, you could give them growth hormone and they will grow. They, you'll accelerate their growth and cause a sort of compensatory increase in appetite because they have to bring in the calories they need to build all these new body structures. The idea was all you had to do was, you know, in effect, increase insulin levels and you'd increase fat formation. And this taking in more energy than they expend would be a compensation rather than the cause. One of the arguments I make in my book is that in any growing system in nature, in effect, growth is a cause, and this, you know, taking in more energy than you expend is the effect. So if you think of a growing child, um, child gets taller, it gets heavier, um, and it has to take in more calories than it expends. He or she expends, but he's not taking in more calories than he or she expends because, I mean, she's not growing because she's taking in right. more calories than she expends. She's growing because she's secreting growth hormone, and the yeah. growth hormone is stimulating the secretion of insulin-like growth factor, and that's driving growth. And the sort of what's called positive energy balance is the effect, not the cause. And if you have a tumor growing, when a tumor's growing, it's taking in more calories than it expends because it's getting bigger, but that's not the why it grows. It's growing because yeah. it's got all these defects and tumor suppressor genes and oncogenes that are driving it to grow. And the positive energy balance is an effect. And the argument I make is this is always the case. And so by the mid-1960s, you should have had a hypothesis of obesity 
that is caused by, in effect, uh, this dysregulation of insulin signaling that's, that's, that's resulting in elevated levels of insulin driving fat accumulation. And the problem is that by that time, we had decided that dietary fat caused heart disease. And see, now insulin is secreted primarily in response to the carbohydrate content of the diet. So the more carbs, the more refined carbs, and sugars in particular seem to cause this thing called insulin resistance. So you've actually got a hypothesis that really nicely fits with what Cleve documented in 80 or so years of research that documented in these isolated populations, that you change the nature of the carbohydrates they consume. They start secreting more insulin, they become insulin resistant, they get fatter, they get type 2 diabetes, they get heart disease. Um, but it didn't, couldn't be reconciled with this idea that dietary fat caused heart disease, and it couldn't be reconciled with what most lean people sort of naturally believe to be true, that they're lean because they eat in moderation and exercise a lot. You which, know, so we, which can be true. Can be well. No, actually, I don't think it's ever true. Um, and that's the point. It's sort of, um, I would argue, that, you know, body types are genetically determined, and the thing that can change the, the genetic determinant of obesity would be how you respond to the carbohydrates in the diet, how well you could tolerate them in effect. So, a lean person is a person who can tolerate a carb-rich diet and has the energy to exercise, and a fat person is a person who can't and who, because of the insulin signaling, they end up with too much fat in their fat tissue, and now they don't have the energy to exercise because all that energy is being sucked up by their fat tissue. So I want to I cut to the chase because we have a lot more to talk about. And This is, in a, in a way, it's, it's, it's a punchline of the first part of this conversation, which is that you come out and you wrote a, a beautiful, uh, interesting New York Times uh, article on this, uh, particularly uh, on the role of sugar. So you come out and you say, look, for a long time we got seduced or waylaid or whatever it is. We got too focused on this fat is what is the source of our ills uh, in our diet, fat in our diet. And in fact, it's not fat. It's sugar and it's it's refined carbs. And I have to confess, and my problem is not as bad as yours, but I have the problem too – when I hear that, there's something so elegant and beautiful about it. So although there's something rich and interesting that each disease has its own cause, this idea that there's one cause and all I have to do – if you're listening out there, there's an incredible power to this. All I have to do is cut back on sugar and refined carbs and I'm going to reduce my risk of obesity. I'm going to reduce my risk of heart attack, I'm going to reduce my cancer, I'm going to reduce my diabetes risk. That's a very seductive idea, particularly since for the last 10 weeks, I personally have started cutting back dramatically on sugar. And I want to believe, and and carbs, refined carbs particularly, I want to believe that was a good sacrifice. I was doing the right thing. And I have lost a lot of weight, by the way. So I'm starting to think, yeah, this small data set, one, one observation, me, I'm starting to think this might be true. And now I read your book and I think, wow, I, this is the truth. But of course, you as the author really have a problem because you have a huge stake in this argument now. How do you – what's your evidence that you're not just falling prey to the Ansel Keys and other folks who've made the same mistake? Um, 
Well, this is what's interesting. One of the problems with this hypothesis, you know, all, all quacks always argue what you just described. I mean, just do this one thing. I'm going to sell you a book about, by the way. Yeah, and I got and, tapes you know, too. I got DVDs. There's a whole. You can you get a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so. One of the problems with this has always been that, that you know, physicists love unified theories. That's all they want is a unified theory of, of the universe of everything. You know, gravity, quantum physics, beautiful. We're going to spend our everybody in the same business. Let's go find a unified theory. That's why nature works. In medicine, it's quackery. Okay, we don't want a unified theory of disease. And actually, one of the response against this that you get all the, I get all the time is uh, obesity is a complicated multifactorial disease. And if I argue that you should begin with Occam's razor, you know, don't complicate hypotheses beyond necessity, they'll argue that then, no, 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 we've, we're far beyond that. They're not a scientist. That only means matters in physics. You're not a scientist. Come on. That's not, yeah, I'm a journalist. You're making, well, and you're making it so easy. That's, that's the easy way out. You've got to look at it. It's deeper. It's more complicated. Well, and it's, you know, and it's interesting because, of course, if you think that the, the, the planets have to travel around the sun, and this is going to get really tricky now because, and I'll explain. But if you believe that the planets travel around the sun in perfect circles, then you can't Occam's explain razor. the observations, right? Retrograde motion and yep. other things. So now you have to start adding epicycles, and you say, well, it's complicated, and it's complicated because you your fundamental paradigm is yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Remember, I started my career, well, we didn't talk about this. My first book, I lived at CERN, the big physics laboratory in Geneva. This was back in 84, 85, and I watched some excruciatingly smart high-energy physicists discover non-existent elementary particles. And then I watched the experiment kind of schism into two groups, those who were concerned with covering their asses and proving they were right all along, and the other group that, that felt they actually had an obligation as scientists to get the truth out there, even if it made them look silly, and they would actually look better if they said, here's how we screwed up and we apologize, and if they never said that. Um, and that was the subject of my first book, and then I wrote a book on cold fusion, Remember this huge, yep. great scientific fiasco of the uh, 1989, 1990? And when I came out of Cold Fusion, I used to say, look, anyone, you know, when I was talking to journalists, I would say any time, you know, one of my, my rules of science writing now is that whenever somebody evokes Galileo as a personal role model, he's a quack. Okay? Meaning? Give me an example. Well, I, the, the joke is I just, in effect, evoke Galileo by using epicycles and oh, okay. you know, perfect circles. Um, but you literally, the argument is literally the paradigm is wrong. And as long as your paradigm is wrong, if you believe obesity is just about eating too much and expending too little, this energy balance idea, it's all calories in, calories out, you can't get the right answer. And the counter-argument is pretty simple. The counter-argument is that, look, we're just looking at hormonal enzymatic regulations of growth, just like we would on any biological system. And if we just pay attention to the hormonal enzymatic regulation of the fat tissue, then your problem is carbohydrates, and that should be your null hypothesis that you would have to refute. You know, in defense of what I've done, the way, the reason I got into this, I was doing this piece that I had pitched to the New York Times back in 2001 on what caused the obesity epidemic. Um, at the point in time, the obesity epidemic was new enough was about our consciousness of it was about three or four years old that it was interesting, and you could imagine what caused it. And I had come out of doing a, a, basically a year-long investigation of science about the, the evidence supporting the low-fat-is-good-health notion. 
And there were two things that changed back in you know, the late 1970s to the mid-1980s that um, were viable hypotheses of why obesity levels started shooting upward just at that period. And one was that high fructose corn syrup came in. And actually, um, our total caloric sweetener, high fructose corn syrup is just another kind of sugar, and our total sugar consumption started to increase. And in the past, whenever sugar consumption had gone up significantly, so had obesity and diabetes rates. That had been from the, about the 1870s to the 1920s was the last time we'd seen a significant increase in sugar consumption. Um, so that was one hypothesis. And the other was that we institutionalized this idea of a low-fat diet being a healthy diet. When you reduce the fat, you replace the fat in the diet with carbohydrates, so like the food guide pyramid. Yeah, you know, the base of the food guide pyramid, the staples of our diet are, you know, pasta, potato, bread, rice, starches, all these Cereals. foods that my mother's generation believed were inherently fattening. But because of the low-fat dogma, they had been transformed into heart-healthy diet foods that we were supposed to eat all the time. So simultaneously, while we start increasing our sugar consumption, because we don't realize high-fructose corn syrup is sugar, something the corn refiners worked hard to make us think, and they succeeded. We also started eating less fat and more of these, you know, formally believed to be fattening carbohydrates. So now I'm doing this story and I'm looking into this and I come upon five clinical trials that were done uh, and had not been published yet, even though the results had been um, reported in conferences so I could discuss them. And they were all clinical trials of the Atkins diet. So now we have a hypothesis. Atkins diet being a low-carb diet. The Atkins diet is a low-carb, high-fat, high-saturated-fat diet, in which you can eat as much as you want, by the way. Just don't eat carbs. So it's called an ad libitum diet. You can eat as much food as you want. Just don't eat carbohydrates. It's lunch. I'm going to have a chicken. I'm going to have a whole chicken dinner. I'm going to have, you know, lobster Newburg or a two-pound steak, and breakfast is going to be five eggs with bacon and sausage and... And you know, we had two hypotheses going in here. One is that obesity is caused by eating too much, right? So if you want to lose weight, you've got to eat less, exercise more. And the other is that heart disease is caused by eating a high-fat, high-saturated-fat diet. So now we do a clinical trial where we put half our subjects on an American Heart Association Step 1 diet. It's a low-fat low-calorie, low-saturated-fat diet. So, you know, basically it's a small portion of skinless chicken breasts with some brown rice and lettuce for lunch, and breakfast, you know, is a bowl of Special K with skim milk and a banana. You know, the routine, we all lived like this for decades. Um, and then the yourself. other is this high-fat, high-saturated-fat diet, this Atkins diet where you can eat as much as you want of all these foods that are supposed to kill us. And in every one of these five studies, not only did the... Atkins diet group lose more weight. Remember, they're allowed to eat as much as they want. But they lost more weight than people who were calorie restricted, who were told only to eat 1,400 or 1,500 calories. Their heart disease risk factors improved as well. So the diet that's supposed to kill you and make you fat, if you believe these twin hypotheses that we had all come to believe, in fact was a diet that seemed that made you lose weight, more weight, and seem to, you know, increase your risk of living long enough to see your great-great-grandchildren graduate from college. So the counterpoint to that, though, as someone who has tried a zero-carb diet, it's not what I'm experimenting with now, but having done a zero-carb, 
is it's not sustainable. Your body re- re- gets real upset that it doesn't have any carbs, and then you eat one potato chip, and then next thing you know, you finished off three bags, and it's over. You're you're back to where you were. In fact, you you, you usually end up weighing more after you're, you're done with that. So those low carb, zero carb diets, you have to be on them forever, and we can't do it. So maybe it's well, not, not such a good idea. Not only can we do it, but we all, we've only run our tests out for two years, so we're convinced, remember, that dietary fat, saturated fat is going to give you heart disease and maybe going to give you cancer, and we've only done the trials for two years, so the best we can say is these are short-term weight loss diets, at which point you're supposed to add the carbs back in. But the, the counter-argument for me is, you know, it's very hard to quit smoking. I, I'm a writer and a freelance writer. Yeah, I'm a neurotic. I used to smoke. I tried to quit every day for about ooh, 20 years before I finally succeeded. I mean, I had periods where I quit successfully for three months, six months, but nobody who quits smoking for three months or quits, you know, and then falls off the wagon and goes back to smoking, it doesn't affect the argument that cigarettes cause lung cancer. Good point. Fair enough. But in this <laughs> world, it does, because we're going to use every argument we can to shoot these down. So a common argument you hear is, it's hard to stay on the diet, therefore carbohydrates don't make you fat. And that's like saying it's hard to quit cigarettes, therefore cigarettes don't cause lung cancer. Yeah, it's back, it's, to the, it's back to the we have to do something, and therefore, since this doesn't help us do something, we may as well ignore it. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. and it's, uh, you find all these rationalizations, I, and I think diet is it's really like a religious um, I mean, maybe economics is like this it is. too. But no, I talk about it all the time. We have it. It's dogmatic. Yeah. It's religious yeah. in a certain dimension. We yeah. have, and, we but have in cor- diet, we also have these issues. You know, meat eating is an issue. Uh, you know, abusing animals is an issue. Uh, there are vegetarians and vegans who argue that these diets are are wrong. I mean, now it's there are environmental issues involved with this. You know, sure. Supposedly, uh, meat eating contributes as much to global warming as driving. You know, 1969 Chevy Camaros without tailpipes. Um, the uh, and again, the argument is, well, you know, I, for all I know, meat eating does. But that's not the debate. But that's not the debate. The debate is literally what makes us fat, what causes heart disease, what causes diabetes, and if you're already obese and diabetic, like let's take an obese diabetic mother, and she's going to give birth to children who are predisposed to becoming both obese and diabetic. What do you want her to do for her kids? Because starving them and getting those kids to run around the track, you know, an hour a day is just torturing the kids. And it's not actually reversing the problem because the problem isn't because they eat too much and exercise too little. Those are just effects, you know. I mean, imagine you could find cancer patients who um, are bedridden and don't exercise at all. You're not going to run them around the track because you think sedentary behavior must be the cause of their cancer. Um, so you got to give them the right, you got to diagnose the disease correctly. You have to identify the cause correctly, and you have to act. And if the act is getting rid of the carbs that cause the problem, then unfortunately these people are going to have to eat more meat, more animal products, because animal products, like when you say you've experimented with a zero-carb diet, the only way to do it, you can't do that in a vegan, vegetarian, well, you no. can't do it in a vegan world. No. Uh, it's virtually impossible, if not impossible, in a vegetarian world. Um, I mean, you can drink olive oil, I guess, all day. Well, soy. And soy. But right. there's probably, yeah, um, it's tough. So you're pretty much stuck with uh, animal products. And it just, it, it, it becomes this, this, this ethical issue, this religious issue, this environmental issue, when it's 
fundamentally the argument I you know, well, let's get the health right. Like if somebody knows that they're going to doom their kids to a life of obesity and diabetes because they're going to make them vegetarians or vegans, and that's fine as long as they understand that they're not doing their kids any favor right. and that there's no, a choice right. they made. That's right. That's, uh, the question, though, is, is that true? So let's talk uh, – we have a little time left. Let's talk about, one, where you think we stand with respect to this hypothesis. So you said, well, persuasive to you are five study clinical trials of the Atkins diet that seemed overwhelmingly to show that it wasn't calories in and, and calories out and exercise out or whatever you want to call it, the energy balance model. Uh, it was whether you ate carbohydrates or not. Now, it's true that we all are prone to confirmation bias. It's true that scientists have their pet hypotheses. It's true it's hard to cha- admit you were wrong. But there's five clinical trials. Well, actually, there was five in 2001, okay. 2002. There's dozens now, probably, you know, there might be a hundred for all I know. Now they're done regularly. So the question is, there's a nice post on your blog about yeah. the speech you gave in front of epidemiologists where they said, what do you think? Do you think we're all idiots? So are, are, are serious scientific people who have the, as you call them the, in, your, in your post, the wizards, People who've, who've got the right credentials and who, who appear to be uh, scientific, at least, uh, aren't they? Are they moving in your direction? Do uh, they? Some of them. I mean, I'd say I've probably you know, uh, nine years ago, I probably had uh, a thousandth of a percent uh, of the medical research community on my side, and now I might be up to one percent. Uh, or two percent. That's that's a pretty dramatic so what, increase. So what did the other ninety-eight percent say when you wave your evidence and just like? Uh, well, you, the other ninety-eight percent don't pay attention to my evidence. I mean, there's probably ten percent. You know, that'd be an interesting question. The, 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 as a journalist, the problem I have is what I call the "it's crap I haven't read it" problem. And this was after I wrote, read this book on, I wrote this book on high energy physics. You know, it turned out to be an expose because I ended up watching these physicists discover non-existent particles and the Nobel Prize winning head of the experiment trying to cover it up that they had screwed up. And uh, so it was a pretty brutal expose. And afterwards, one of my friends in the physics community asked the sort of uh, one of the the the, the uh, chief kind of crony of this Nobel laureate, what he thought of my book, and this fellow said, "It's crap. I haven't read it." It's yeah, that's the it's the parallel explanation for when you put forward a hypothesis and people say it's obvious and it's wrong. Uh, it, it's just a, it's a fancy way of saying I don't. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, or I just I know. I mean, actually, from their point of view, I know enough about it. Yeah, you're just a journalist. But I don't have yeah. to read. I yeah. know enough about what this fellow Taubes thinks. If I know who Taubes is, and most of them do by now, and I'm kind of an annoyance, I know enough about what Taubes thinks. I saw that Times Magazine article he did 10 years ago, and I don't have to know anymore. You're just a fancy version of a quack. You're still a yeah, quack, a fancy, but you're a slightly kind of, yeah, journalistic version highbrow. of a quack. You're a highbrow and, quack, yeah. You know, and I've had this argument with people. It's funny because I've said to people, you know, a similar way to think about it is imagine you're an atheist or, you know, you uh, a devout Catholic, and somebody suggests that if you read Richard Dawkins' yeah. book, The God Delusion, this, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to convince you that you're wrong. Yeah, it's a, yeah. 
And it's it's now and it's funny because I have a recently. So I said, you know, in the same part, like I'm an atheist. Let's say I read a book that some journalist has written a book that's very compelling evidence that God exists. And even if I was open minded, I said, okay, I'm going to read it, you know, because I'm open minded and it's gotten good reviews and people I respect think highly of it. And I will bet you I'm going to get maybe a couple chapters in, and I'm going to think he's not telling me the whole story. Sure. He's, this, he's twisting this and spinning that, and this is Cherry a rhetorical picking. game, and yeah. I'm not going to get through it, and I'm going to close it. Yeah. And the funny thing is I have a, a fan at Yale uh, who happens to be a born-again Christian. I said this to her, and she said, oh, well, you should read this book written by a journalist. It's <laughs> compelling evidence that God exists. Yeah. And I said, I should. And I put it on my Amazon, you know, uh, shopping list, which basically means to consider buying when my three-year-old goes off to college yep. in 15 years. Sure. I can't do it. Even this, a very smart woman, she's married to a very smart researcher. They're both, oh, you, you know, like, I respect them both. I can't read that You've made a big investment in your worldview. You've thought about yeah. it a lot, perhaps. I'll, I'll assume you have. And you like it, and and you. There's another piece of this which we haven't talked about. I I happen to be a religious Jew, in in, in reality, and and I'm very aware of of the role of doubt and belief, and it all makes me think about economics as well because we have the same issues as, as we talked about earlier, and part of it is it's part of our identity too. It's not just. Well, I I weighed all the facts and I came to religion or I weighed all the facts and I came to sugar and carbs. It becomes part of the people you hang out with, the the uniform you wear out in the world, the club you're in, your self-identity, your self-perception. And it's extraordinarily costly to change those things and it's painful and uh, most of the time we don't do it. Now, not all the time. And also, you know, what we – before we started this interview, we talked briefly about Francis Bacon. We're not wired to do that. Once those perceptions are created in our brain, for whatever reason, we're, we're wired to, in effect, reject evidence against it. So I, I, I don't actually know what evidence could be presented at this point of the existence of God that I wouldn't preferentially interpret as me having gone crazy. Right. I understand that. You know? And that's why we're not and that's and that's why we're not going to debate it. I would say to yeah. you and we don't debate it generally. I don't say to you, let me make the case and you make the case against and we yell right. at each other. We both realize that's not a fruitful experience. But it's interesting to me that in economics or in epidemiology, we're doing the same thing really but we're masking it, and this is the Hayekian idea of, uh, of his condemnation of scientism. We're, we're masking it in the language of science. We're using data. And as a result, what we're really debating often in these cases is dogmatic or ideology or philosophy. But we pretend we're debating about which study is the right study. And my claim is not to say – I would never say, oh, therefore, evidence doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is have the debate, but be aware in yourself and in your opponents possibly being correct and possibly being misleaded, misled and, 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 and wrong. Be aware that you've got these deep-seated biases, priors, etc. And I, I love your quote of Richard Feynman, which is, the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. And yeah. I think a thoughtful person, whether you're dogmatic about carbs and sugar, whether God exists, all those things, 
you got to look into your soul or your mind or your heart, whatever you want to call it, and admit that you're not a truth seeker in some scientific, ideal, romanticized way. You've got this baggage. We all have it. Well, this is what's interesting because one of the arguments I would make is just, like, I don't have to convince people I'm right. I have to convince people it's worth testing rigorously. And in one of my challenges, I also don't, I think one of the reasons we got into the situation in nutrition is because it's been a pseudoscience since the Second World War. That in effect, there was a culture of science um, that had grown up out of Europe prior to the Second World War that was very highly, you know, honed and rigorous and skeptical, and it kind of vanished with the war. And in fields like physics, um, we imported, we, we embraced all these European physicists who got chased out of Europe, and because we had atom bombs to build and hydrogen bombs and a Cold War to fight, and actually many of the, um, the leading figures in, in high energy physics in the, the mid to late 20th century were European emigre or their students. Um, because they had this culture of science, but in other fields, particularly medicine and public health and probably economics as well, we didn't want anything to do with these people. So the ideas of rigorously testing hypotheses, of not, um, you know, not acting on faith, not allowing an idea or an assumption to sneak into your worldview as, as masquerading as a fact, because once it does, it's gonna, it's gonna, uh, pollute everything that comes afterwards. And, you know, I, so I have to convince people that, first of all, this idea is worth testing, and then you've got to test it right. Because if you don't test it rigorously, um, you're going to get the wrong answer again. Are you going to come up with this, these kind of vague, uh, nonsensical bodies of evidence that you can interpret any way you want? You're know, like Rorschach tests. Um, yeah, it's, and, worse. it's actually worse than that in economics. Um, well, I believe it, because I can imagine how to test you know, I, I hope someday to raise the money. We're in the process of creating a nonprofit to raise money to do the kind of studies I think is necessary. But in economics, but, the more I, certain you are, the more confident you are, the more dismissive you are of your ideological enemies, the bigger your platform. Uh, yeah. So there's a and, and now, see, in 19, you talk about the change in the culture. You still there? Yeah. In 1970, there were two economists who could make a living. Uh, Talking about pub, not make a living, make some money at all. Talking about public policy differences and ideology, and that was they were Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman. They each had a column in Newsweek that alternated, and they yelled at not yelled. They were very uh, polite people, but they they disagreed with each other, and um, they were able to make have a nice platform because there was room for two of them. Maybe now there's room for hundreds because of the blogosphere, because of the explosion in information. And the competition is to be loud and sure of yourself. That's how you get to the top. And, of course, you can still be right. And I don't want to suggest that being loud and sure of yourself is not um, – proves you're wrong. It doesn't. But it does change the culture of our profession. Well, this is the very first you – know, the first book I wrote about high-energy physics, Nobel Dreams. The physicist I was writing about who ran this experiment, Carlo Rubio, was a very kind of Machiavellian Italian physicist who – he taught at Harvard, and he worked in Geneva, and he commuted between the two weekly. His, um, and he had been wrong on virtually everything he'd done. But he just had demonstrated how he could move up to the very top of his field by claiming a discovery and then kind of moving on to the next experiment and leaving better scientists to clean up the mess after him. 
And this has been a common theme in everything I've written about, that people, you know, by making declarative uh, uh, pronouncements based on preliminary data and standing and then, you know, fighting viciously to get people to believe it, you can do very well for yourself in these careers. Nobody moves forward by um, uh, spending their career checking other people's work to see if it was right or not. Yeah. And actually, one of my favorite lines from physics was from this... Uh, uh, Nobel Prize winner Sam Ting at, at MIT, who said to me, "To be, to be, see if I can get this right, um, to be first and right is good. To be first and wrong is not so good, and to be second and right is meaningless." Oh, that's deep. Yeah, that's deep. Well, we're going over, but let me. I want to ask you two more things, and then we'll then we'll we'll call it. Um, where do you again? I think there's an important difference between epidemiology and, and economics, which are this cell-based science that you can actually see what's going on, and eventually the causal. It's imaginable that the causal relationships will be uh, irrefutable or at least powerful and, and persuasive. Do you think that's going to happen? Or do you think it already has happened in nutrition? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> You know, again, as long as the paradigms are wrong, what they do at a cellular level doesn't really matter. And you've still got these huge, you know, I'm thinking there just a week ago, there was an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine by this Walter Willett of Harvard, who's kind of the biggest name in nutritional epidemiology, and this fellow David Ludwig, who's claim to fame more than anything is having written a column in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, so now he's perceived as kind of an authoritative voice, and they're arguing that the dietary guidelines have got it all wrong, and they're saying now then so that we have to do much better science, and what they consider good science is these long-term observational perspective studies that are incapable of determining cause and effect. Mm. And the same studies, like I said, that if you generate a hypothesis out of them and then test the hypothesis in a real experiment, um, you, uh, you get to, you get a different answer. So right now, the field, the people who are professing to be the sort of voices of reason, I would consider pseudoscientists. So we're moving in the wrong direction. But I, it's not so much even, with nutrition doing cellular experience, you know, being able to see what's happening at a cellular level, you can do, if you think you about it hard trials. enough yeah. and you're willing to spend the money, pretty rigorous controlled trials with humans. That's what I want to raise money to do. If you, you can treat humans like laboratory rats, it's not easy, it's expensive, but you could do them where you, in effect, feed them specific foods, make them eat it, and see what happens over a long enough time period that you could at least change, get significant changes in, in well-established risk factors for disease. You also have to monitor them because you've got to make sure they don't sneak out and get that, uh, that ice cream fix. Well, that's one of the things that makes it expensive. You have to do it in a kind of enclosed environment so you could demonstrate that they're eating what you told them, what you gave them. Yeah. Um, this is not the culture of the field at the moment. Uh, this and it hasn't been, like I said, for 50 years. Uh, you know, I think that can change, but there I'm probably being naive. Um, but we'll see. Okay, so I the, hope so. The last thing, I, the last thing I want to ask you is that, uh, somewhat like economics, but not really. Uh, there's 
there's the administrative, uh, institutional, government-driven, funding-driven, reputational-driven beliefs that come out of the scientific community. And you, we've talked today about how they've swung back and forth over time and sometimes in ways that we might think are okay, sometimes not so encouraging. But there's also what everybody believes down who on the ground, those people like me. So if I like your theory – I might ignore all the the institutional so-called wisdom of the so-called experts, and I'm just going to keep going with my low low sugar, low refined carb diet. And I'm going to get my own little test, and it's it's one observation, and and it's flawed. But I'm going to make my own decision, and I've, I've got the placebo effect working for me too in the background, by the way. So even if it doesn't work, the fact that I believe it might help me anyway. Uh, I've got nothing against a good placebo. Yeah, effect. it's awesome. And, and um, you're selling a lot of books, I'm sure. Uh, people like this, and as you point out in the beginning of your book, which I found utterly fascinating, uh, the relationship between carbohydrate consumption and weight loss has been – was folk wisdom for a long, 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 long time. And people believed it and acted on it and lost a lot of weight, and maybe you'll win anyway. So uh, well, what's your reaction that, to that? That's one possibility. I think – I think this idea that refined carbs and sugars are bad has actually already been accepted sort of popularly. Yeah, it's how if bad. If you look at when diet, <laughs> when people do diet trials now, low-fat diets are still, you know, they'll now give advice, don't eat white bread, don't eat starches. You're supposed to eat whole grains and what are called low glycemic index uh, carbohydrates, which are carbohydrate foods that, that you digest slowly, so it's all aimed at, at in effect, suppressing insulin levels. I think that'll be accepted. And I've actually had people say, oh, you're not saying anything we don't already know. It's good sure, it's carbs obvious, and yeah. bad carbs and good fats and bad fats. Um, the battle is getting it accepted that, that, that fats are not only good, including saturated fats, but they might be necessities and they might be the, the more you eat, the better. <laughs> and that's going to take more time. But it is true that everyone can do an N of one experiment here. When it's coming to weight... Yeah, that's how I did this. I did an experiment 10 years ago. It was actually um, an economist named Andrew Lowe. Do you know Andrew at I do MIT? Not. No. He runs a laboratory for financial engineering, and I was interviewing what I was doing this story on, on dietary fat for science. I was also doing a story for Discover on the economics of the mathematics of the stock market, and I was interviewing Andrew, and he said, Oh, well, then you, if you're doing fat, you've got to try the Atkins diet. You know, it's a high-fat, high-saturated-fat diet. He said he had a colleague at Warden. His father lost 200 pounds on it. You know, he said he lost 40 pounds, basically giving up white rice, and I should do it. And I tried it, and you lose weight effortlessly, and you're not hungry. And it's, so anyone can do The question is you don't know if you're going to kill yourself. Right. You don't know what the longer run. Yeah, other, and that's where yeah. you need the clinical trials yeah. just to... You know, have this faith that while you're sitting there eating your eggs and bacon in the morning, you are not indeed clogging your arteries. Um, or doing something else that you don't – some other – you're losing weight, but there's an unintended consequence, which is what happens. Un- in- yeah, and you, you just never know. And when you do – you know, I'm a 55-year-old man. I have ailments, and I never know, you know, are they caused by my diet? I don't know. Or yeah. would I be in worse shape if I was on the diet I used to eat? Just like stimulus. It's it, it, either either it wasn't big enough. It either made the economy worse, or it just wasn't big enough. Hard to distinguish yeah. between the two. Unfortunately, that's for our country. Uh, for you as an individual, um, I, I care about you too. But 
we ought to be making those decisions on somewhat scientific basis, it seems to well, me. Well, that's in one of the arguments I've made to when I lecture in medical schools and research. Look, we've got this obesity and diabetes epidemic going on. I mean, diabetes rates, uh, diagnoses have tripled since 1980 in 30 years. I mean, that's an enormous increase, in, no matter how much is a diagnostic effect or changing diagnostic criteria. Something has changed, and it's changed during this period that you've insisted you know what causes obesity and what causes diabetes and what kind of diet we should eat. Can't you accept that maybe you got it wrong? And then they say, oh, yeah, maybe we got it wrong, but it's multifactorial and complex. Do you find it uh, challenging to this idea, by the way, that, that despite – or any reaction to the fact that despite – these rises, these increases in diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, obesity, lifespan keeps getting longer um, every year it's an interesting, in America. It's an interesting finding. The thing with lifespan is it's so, you know, if you think about um, the number of bypass surgeries you do every year, the number of, uh, you know, the, the extraordinary increases in what you, what you have to establish in effect is that you're actually, um, you know, how much of that is lifestyle and how much of yeah. that is... You need a counterfactual. Yeah. You don't have yeah. one. And you don't know. <laughs> and that's the thing. So it's sort of... Um, but it's interesting. Like I've often wondered if, if I'm going to blame obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, et cetera, on sugar and refined carbs, what are you going to die from if you don't eat it? And then my theory is, okay, you're in perfect health. You can go to your grandkids third birthday when you're 75 you have one heart you know you have one ice cream cone and your heart blows up because you're not inured to these things yeah who knows? and then everyone blames it on your low-carb diet that you've been eating until then but that's a crap i mean you still have to do a randomized control trial the fact that that we're living longer could be just the wonders of medical care and hospitals and emergency room uh you know the the emergency medical yeah. services um but economists tend to look at fundamental nutrition, and actually they go the other way. They look at – economists tend to explain lifespan by the fact that nutrition's improved dramatically in just in terms of raw calories. And we, we're fat because food's cheap. So we're very uh, – we use Occam's razor too. So there yeah, are there – no, all... Then again, the argument I make is, yeah, food's cheap, but why is it that poor people are fatter than rich people? And why is it that you could find populations that have levels of obesity equal to that we have in the U.S. today that were ex- – unimaginably poor. Fair enough. You My know. guest today has been Gary Taubes. Gary, it's been uh, great having you on Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This has been great. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.